In real estate, you got to find it, you got to fund it, you got to manage it. And so I'm trying to kind of have one chairperson over each category. And right now for the broker relations, that'll be me and the investor relations. But outside of that, anything with an email should be handled by another team member. And I know it's easy to say, but it's a work in progress and just build that most important system now. You're listening to the Real Estate of Things podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Real Estate of Things. I'm your host, Nate Tronfio with Lima One Capital. And we have my dear friend, value add multifamily Mike Taravella with us today. Uh, Mike is, again, not only a dear friend of mine, but super knowledgeable in all things multifamily. Has a really great story that I like to get into here, leaving the corporate world and corporate jobs in order to get into real estate investing and now off in his own, uh, owns uh, about to be over 700 doors, $81 million assets under management. Uh, there's a whole lot of, of, of really knowledge and, and brain power stuck up inside that man's brain. So I'm excited to dive into it. Mike, welcome to the Real Estate of Things show, my man. Thank you, Nate. Yeah, excited to be on here and just talk shop and tell people how how to and how not to do things in the real estate as they try to leave their W-2 and just tell real stories and keep it real for everyone. That's why we call it the real estate of things because we keep it real, man. And <laughs> um, and look, you know, uh, our journeys all in real estate investing are certainly never perfect because I think if they were, I, I don't know, I'd, I, if I had to find guests that had perfect trajectories and careers, I wouldn't find anybody. Um, but everybody also has their own unique start into getting into real estate. And so you, know, you you've come from the corporate world. Um, I also know uh, Michigan State alum. Um, yes, sir. So you, you, know, you got to be a relatively smart guy. I mean, I know you were audience will hear that throughout <laughs> this. Um, but I think you started what it, it Ernest and Young, but tell us the story of your corporate career and more so the transition into real estate, man. Yeah. So in college, I started a screen printing company and that kind of opened my eyes of just like entrepreneurship because I was Michigan State CPA, you know, go work for big four, stay till your partner, then you make money. And then once I started my screen printing business in college, I'm like, oh, we can make money by not having a job. Like, this is cool. We did 20 grand in sales in nine months. And I was like, oh, this is it for me. Like it just, it felt right. Just taking like going off Craigslist, buying a $900 press, screening printing press, and then like making shirts. So uh, so that like changed the game. And even my professor before I graduated with my master's was like, I'm like, I'm gonna, am I going to like accounting? And she laughed at me and I have a good rapport with her. And she's just like, no, you have no risk. Like your risk tolerance as an accountant is like so far, far high that no, you'll just lose your mind. So I uh, did a couple of years in public accounting with Ernst & Young. It was really helpful there just like managing teams. And that actually helped me work with virtual teams overseas, which alludes to later because now we have two virtual team members in the Philippines on our staff. But then that helped me just get the financial bearings and the backgrounds and what could go wrong and how people can manipulate stuff by just being an auditor for two years and just seeing the systems. And then I worked for Dan Gilbert, who owns Quicken Loans and the Cleveland Cavaliers. And all and all of Detroit, I think, just about. <laughs> just about. Between them and the Illiches, they run everything. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was just the point guy for like these startups. So I managed like 12 of them from paying bills to biz dev to where like corporate strategy and just how to scale and helped just lot, build a lot of systems and processes because that's where a lot of my screen printing business failed and a lot of startups fail because they don't have systems. So I realized there, I'm like, okay, I, and I saw him doing everything in real estate in Detroit. I'm like, this is how you get money. Like, yes, the startups are cool. They have the flash, but it's like, 
one out of a hundred are like are good investments, but real estate is the foundation. So bought two single families, thought I was like, you know, the man making $400 a month. I'm like, yeah, I did it. And then I was like raking leaves, 27 bags of leaves in Michigan. And I hated it. Mo- went to a real estate event, which hosted by John Kasman. Saw everyone in the room doing deals. And I was like, oh, I need to do multifamily. So stopped doing single family, moved to Chicago uh, to be closer to them and just mentors. And I just worked for free for a about a year, educating, blogging, helping people get to meetups, introducing people, connecting people, just so I could be at the table and underwriting deals for free. Uh, and so I got the call to work uh, for a group in Knoxville, has 1,500 doors, and got three years of experience working with them. And then July of last year, you know, like Nate said, 600 doors, 81 million. And now uh, in July, moved to Nashville to go independent and uh, partnered with groups in Denver, uh, looking at deals in North Carolina, in the Nashville MSA, and just trying to take over the world one brick by brick. Man, that, that's, I mean, it's an exciting journey. I know the, the short amount of time you just articulated through and, and backwards to it doesn't really exemplify the blood, sweat, and tears that you took to get to where you're at. But like, you talked a little bit about sort of some inflection points, but like, what went through the mind as you were like, screw this corporate shell. Let me get away from this coat. You know, let me, let me keep going down this multifamily real estate investor road. Um, like what was the mindset during that? Yeah. So I think it's a couple of, like the mindset was like, I have to have all of my money to do this. And then I thought I partnered with a buddy in high school who wanted to do a single family house as well. But then I was like, just doing, I was doing all the work myself and I'm like, this is so inefficient. And I was helping these businesses and startup scale but I wasn't doing listening to my own advice when it came to real estate. So I was like, how do I like build a team? How do I even do, how do I become bigger? And so uh, every cliche, like the network is your net worth. So just like meeting John Kasman, going to the events, being around people who closed. And I'm like, oh, these are like, even Joe Fairless was there. And so all of these people have built teams and scaled their business. It wasn't, and I see a lot of people who start off in multifamily and real estate, they're like, I have to do everything so I can make the most money. I'm like, well, that's what a job is and you'll hate your life, I promise. So (laughs) just be really good at one thing. And for me, it was underwriting and just like connecting people, like just underwrite. I underwrote every deal for three years in my markets uh, because I I wanted to know the numbers and just understand how different properties operated. So like I... I didn't read a textbook in Hunter Underwrite, but I was like calling tax assessors. I underwrote lease up like every time just so I know what the market was doing and what rents were. And obviously got that experience by working for free at first. But I think that's like a huge differentiator. But after that, like you you take full ownership of your career and what you do. And by literally knowing every deal and underwriting every deal in your market, that's worth an MBA in experience for sure. <laughs> well, I know you said that a teacher of yours said, nah, Mike, you got too big of a risk tolerance to stay in this corporate path, but you still followed that for a little bit. But like, what, what do you think? I think a lot of things that prevent people from taking the leap and the jump and the step is the risk. So like from your perspective, looking backwards now, like what was the true biggest risk and you know, how easy was that perceived risk to overcome at the end of the day? Uh, I think it just the biggest risk is like people are afraid to leave the people that got them to where they are. So like at Ernst and Young, I had people say, "Who would want to do business with you?" 
My ex-girlfriend was like, I think you should stick to the accounting. When I closed my first rental property, my mom cried because she thought I was going to lose all my money. So if you surround yourself with those people uh, that don't like don't have that ambition, they're going to hold you down and, and you're not going to live to your full potential. And so I think it just once you get into a room with people who are doing it, it becomes exponentially more believable that you can do those things. So it's like if you hang out, it's like the five people who surround yourself are the who it's just that's the path you're going to take. Right. So if you hang out with drug dealers, you're going to be a drug dealer. If you hang out with real estate investors, you're going to be a real estate investor. If you're hanging like it's just it's a matter of fact. And once they change the room, all of those negative people left. And it was and it. I mean, it's tough. But once you change the room and you learn from them, the game changes and there's no true potential in what you want. Man, that's that's some interesting stuff. You know, who you surround yourself with, sort of the law of attraction or the law of belief. Um, it's it's crazy how much, you know, power our minds have. And it's also interesting, you know, and in, in, I think you hit it on the head. You know, the question asked really ends up being like they were just perceptions at the time. And you just had to break through all of those. And then you opened your eyes to new visions and opportunities, mainly because from what you said, the people that you surround yourself with. And I think that's just really important. So I think as you listen to this, if you're in any of those stages, just making sure that you surround yourself and absorb, you know, do things for free, take some risks. Um, and I think it will open up your mind to uh, how you look at risk, uh, I guess, in, in that perspective. That's, hey, I learned that from you right there. Um, <laughs> so, man, last July, you know, less than a year ago, you went off on your own and I know you had some stuff under your belt at the time, but like, dude, just walk us through that massive acceleration. I know, you know, you're a humble guy. So you'll say that 700 doors and 80 plus million AUM, no big deal to Mike, but like how walk us through how that happened and how you did that, man. Yeah. So I think the first thing is I had a virtual team member kind of just helping me with my day to day. And so, and, and then I just kind of told people what I was about and what I was doing and just had, a, you know, a lot of connections and uh, partnered with Quantum Capital is funny. They literally are like, oh, you're leaving and doing your own venture. Great. We love to partner with you. And it's with someone I've known for three years and the KP is the writer of Family Guy. So it's just like they, I really wanted to focus on just like people who had scale, right? Like, uh, I think your first deal is kind of like your high school girlfriend or boyfriend, like it's a great time. Everyone has a, like a good memory of it, but it's like, that's not the person you're going to marry. But, and that's what I took is like, I wanted to focus on people who've done it deals before and who I can add value to them and help scale their business from like a hundred units to 300 units. And so working with quantum capital has been great. We've done Nick Amaluxon just great at finding deals and he's just very detailed and just how he operates. And he just needed that like step back in terms of just having virtual team members in place and just helping him scale his business. So helping raise money, being on the asset management side, I got to do four deals and it'll be our fifth in uh, beginning of May. Uh, and then just been in uh, so July, did a couple deals with that uh, and with them. And then in November, hired a virtual analyst. Uh, so I, uh, my first team member hired the second team member. So for all the, you know, virtual assistants, I think it's just if you build a good culture, even virtually, which people think, oh, it's harder, not in place. But I think if you just care about your team and show respect to them, that goes tenfold. Like they 
they sent me the, the greatest birthday gift of just like them and their families wishing me a happy birthday where like I almost cried because it's like we even yesterday they're like you give us a voice and how to run this company and I look at them as partners and not just like a, a number in the Philippines so they just I've really helped focused on building a good corporate culture of just like growth uh and from there you know we looked at deals in tennessee and north carolina we've gotten like four lois accepted but none under contract but just keep calling brokers uh keep you know working on the brand value add mike and just you know keep adding value to people because i know just the karma if you keep helping other people they'll want to help you in return and just caring right because it's a people business and people want to know and i just I like to think I am a little bit different by just being overly transparent because it's, you know, it's just way easier to operate that way. <laughs> uh, we share a lot of the same principles, man. And uh, I just, you know, com commend you for, again, the risk you took, but then the success that you had, man. So there, there's a lot of topics that you just touched on that I want to do some little bit more deeper dives into. So, so you've been bringing up VAs, virtual assistants, uh, a good amount here. So like, how do you look at disseminating work to a virtual assistant versus what are the valuable tasks and items that Mike should be doing? Um, so I look at it as uh, Naval Ravikant has a, a four hour podcast on how to become wealthy and not through luck. And the biggest thing he said is like, what is my highest dollar per hour activity? And I think the biggest thing for that is I just think in systems and I'm really good at finding out how to do one thing once and building a system so I never have to do it again. So I have like my virtual analyst underwrites every single deal. To be honest, I've gotten to the point where he tries, I try to increase the purchase price and tweak a couple things, but it always ends up to his amount. And so the biggest thing to get to that is leverage. I need to train my analyst for two, I train him for two months underwriting every single deal together and explaining everything, how I see things and just creating a checklist of like, is the median household income too low? Is it in a flood zone? Is it too old? Is the city population growing? Like, there's so people try to think like there's a huge ego of like what I, I I'm the best at this, and I challenge you to be like have so little ego that I can replace myself from everything. <laughs> so uh, I'm focusing on doing the content because there's like one brand of just me, but after that I'm trying to delegate just about everything. And obviously, the investor relationships you can't delegate out, but you know, from marketing, asset management, like my virtual assistant, my chief of staff, she does all of our prep. She does our numbers for our, our current portfolio. She's making sure that investors are up to speed. She's making marketing. She's literally handling like my whole back office. And she's even, we had a call yesterday. She's like, we need to make this system to be more organized. And I'm like, yeah, run with it. Like, I give them all the power to make a lot of decisions. I kind of confirm it like, and just make sure it's in the right direction and where we're going. But I look at my team members as like partners because if I just looked at them as an employee, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have the buy-in and they wouldn't care nearly as much. But in real estate, you got to find it, you got to fund it, and you got to manage it. And so I'm trying to kind of have one chairperson over each category. And right now for the broker relations, that'll be me and the investor relations. But outside of that, anything with an email should be handled by another team member. And I know it's easy to say, but it's a work in progress, progress and just, you know, build that most important system now for the first thing to give you some brevity or levity to do build another system. So it's, uh, you know, 
I they're fully competent team members. There's a lot of training up front, but that's any new team member. And I think that's helpful uh, when you think of it that way, instead of just someone in the Philippines or anywhere else in the world. It's cool just sort of peeling back the layers of onions in the brain, man, because you can see why you've been able to like accelerate and scale at, at the pace that you have is because you look at all things, systems and processes to enable scale and growth, which yields scale and growth, which is what you've done, man. Uh, so, so that's really cool. So, so let's, let's dive in then to some things related a little bit to the market, but more specifically on the acquisition front. Right now in multifamily and CRE market, the number of transactions has materially dropped over the last few quarters and months, but it doesn't mean there aren't, there's not good deals out there, but like, what are you doing or what are you coaching VAs to do in order to go out there, find source uh, and, and see if there's any good deals to, to go out and buy, man? Yeah, so I rely, uh, this may be a little bit different, but I rely solely on brokers. I think a lot of people, when they first start off, they're like, I need to do an off-market campaign on 100 plus units. And it's like, a broker is going to handle all of that. So I befriend, you know, just constantly call brokers. Like I was even joking on Twitter, it's like, called a broker and they're like, how do they get them to answer? I'm like, well, if I call them every three weeks for the last four years, they're going to know who I am. They're going to see our offers. We have that relationship. So continue to just calling brokers just to get deals because we've seen the call to offer model has changed and it's more of a more discreet. Hey, you know, we're giving this to the first five people that we know that can close if they like it and that fits their buy box. So uh, constantly calling brokers, uh, just doing lower leverage. In Denver, we've seen 60-ish loan to value. We're even getting quotes of 55, but just not being afraid of that lower leverage and just like real estate titans and Peter Lineman's textbook. You know, what gets you caught is if you're over levered and then you can't pay and then you're underwater and then it's just a bad scenario for everyone. So doing lower levered. And then I think another one is just more creative financing which has added a lot more negotiations with it because it's now you have to negotiate loan to value, term, amortization, interest only. And a lot of the people that we've been doing with that on that are not sophisticated. So we've been talking on a deal for six weeks and we haven't gotten anywhere. And, and then on top of that, it's just constantly reviewing rents. So we've seen rents go up and down and it's just, it gets all over. So we're just constantly updating our rent rolls. And I even told our analysts, it's like, we're going to underwrite this deal a lot before we even submit offers just to make sure we can get in the game. Like we're have all of the correct info. Cause the last thing I want to do is get it under contract. The market changes and I'm like, oh crap, I ruined that relationship <laughs> with that broker. So constant follow-up and just even asking if the sellers are even interested in selling at the price that I need, because you know, before it's like if you were ten percent off, you'd be like, "Hey, never mind, this isn't for us." But I've had offers where I'm like twenty thousand a door off, and then, and then they're like, "Hey, let's let's see what happens." <laughs> hey, you never know. You know, sort of what the Wayne, Wayne Gretzky, you can't make any shot that you don't take type of mentality. So let's let's go down here a little further. So two things related to just calling on brokers because it sounds like you know that's sort of a core focus, obviously. So what's the pitch? What's what's your pitch to brokers? How do you gain like how do you attract them or get them to be attracted to you? Because brokers do get a lot of phone calls. And then the second question is what expectations do you set with brokers? Because if you don't set expectations, people will come back to you with things that it's not your cup of tea and you'll waste your time and their time. And then usually that relationship gets sour. So pitch and expectations, man. How do you speak to brokers? Yeah. So I'm 
it should be a sub 10 minute conversation, right? If you're on the phone 20, 30 minutes, you're like the set, the broker's not making money because they're not calling owners. And so like 10 minute increments. Hey, my name is Mike Taravella. I'm looking for 10 plus units, 10 to 150 units, depending on if we have an existing portfolio there, right? Because if we have a like 36 unit, we can add 10, uh, but 10 to 150 units in the Nashville MSA. We're looking for vintage of 1970s or newer and median household incomes of 40,000 or more at the track level. Those three criteria and uh, eliminate a lot of deals. And to be honest, it takes a lot of follow-up with the brokers because they need to know who you are. But you know, call them, text them, and if you're if you don't have that experience, right? Because I've have the experience, I put in the work and work with teams. Leverage, I think, um, making sure you have your partnership team aligned, meaning like don't go <clears throat> submitting offers on a 120 unit complex when you don't have the EMD money and you need to scramble and find key principles. You're going to waste everyone's time. You're going to ruin your reputation. I've seen people do it and it's a tough pill to swallow. But if you ever get hit with, I need proof of funds, you said something too noobish and need to go back to kind of like what happened because there's no such thing as a proof of funds in multifamily. And that's more of just because of what you said, not the broker. So just making sure you have your key, your team aligned, key principle, your partners, your boots on the ground, because even though you may not have that experience, you can leverage the key principles and you have the team lined up. But if you are new, right, start to those smaller local brokers to make sure they're giving you intros to banking relationships and insurance because they can help kind of pave the way for that first couple deals. But after that, you kind of need to just uh, just hit the phones. And, and being an accountant was a new skill. So uh, I highly recommend fanatical prospecting. Short, sweet, to the point of like intros, what to say and how to say it. Man, you, you know, I think we share a lot of the same library, brother. But, but Jeb Blonde is my favorite sales author. Is an, is another plug there for fanatical prospecting in, in all of his books. Um, so, what what has changed, or what is your tactics right now with offers? I mean, I know you mentioned low leverage is is, is one component that you think sets you apart, which it likely does because, especially as a lender, everybody wants max leverage. So, you know, if you tout that I'm fine with low leverage deals, it opens up what you can buy because it's just less parameters that need to be hit as well as it shows your strength, meaning you have more equity. But like, what have you seen change recently and what are you doing on the offer side specifically? Yeah. On the offer side, I'm having more kind of back end support because I know a year ago with offers, it was primarily who had the highest dollar and the highest probability to close. But with everything changing from insurance to interest to banks, I'm trying to get full quotes from our uh, tax analysis from calling the assessor, having insurance quotes so that I can kind of share that with the broker. Because if even if I don't win it, I can give that to the broker to give to the person who's buying it. And I added value to the broker so that I kind of help with them. Um, identify, like pretty much laying out the business plan. Because in terms of just like, here's the property manager, here's our bank, our bank already quoted it. Here's the emails. And so just shoring up a lot of numbers. And I know you're supposed to do that on the underwriting all, already, but showing my work and not in terms of like, here's my number and why, but just like any of these resources the broker can use to help them ensure that the deal closes and just constantly following up. Like there's deals that go under contract all the time and don't get to close. And so following up every week or two, just checking in like, hey, what's been the biggest hurdle? What's going on? How can I help? Like either help or is it, do I need to re-underwrite the deal because rents have changed? So 
just staying in constant communication and following up, but also showing my work to help either the broker, but also prove that I've really thought out this number and um, to stand out. But I mean, you know, sales is always follow up. (laughs) (laughs) They say all the different stats, but it takes 12 12 attempts to get somebody to the next stage in the sales process, not just to close, but to the next stage is how I always look look at it. Um, But look, it's I think it's it's interesting as, as you listen, you can hear that what you're doing is creating credibility. You're giving that confidence. You're giving that surety of execution. You're backing it up with a bunch of, as I'll call, receipts in numerous different ways. And that just goes back even to sort of how you're pitching brokers because you didn't come out and say, hey, I pitch them on this, that, and the other, and I'm this really sleazy salesperson. You're just more saying, hey, I tell them what I want. I set the expectations, and then I walk the walk behind it and show them this is why I do it or when I have a deal opportunity this is why I want to buy it at this. This is what I know. This is the support I have for my team, for my banks, from all those different elements. So, you know, we, we've been talking then, and you've been talking uh, around elements related to just like, how do you find then the deals and underwriting? So like what now, you know, we're, we just surpassed and are moved into Q2 of 2023. What now is most important from your perspective, Mike, related to underwriting a multifamily deal? Yeah, I think really avoiding... Oh, another uh, one thing too, to piggyback on the brokers. I name my deals after the brokers because I have no ego in this. So literally our 36 unit, we named after the broker. And that's helped win a couple deals, uh, you know, get it forward before everyone else. And uh, <laughs> Alex Rodriguez, I got... Uh, I was like, listen, is A-Rod going to name the deal after you like I did? And he's like, yeah, you're right. And then just hung up. So, um, But I think going into Q2, I think I have a different perspective in terms of uh, I look for more appreciation, and I know that you know there's people who are like, "Oh my God, I need cash flow." But when I hear cash flow, I, when I th- how I think of cash flow is that's my margin of error. So I'm not buying deals that don't make any money. I'm hoping to make like before a year ago is like four to five percent year, like on average. But realistic now that the, you know the risk free rate with T bonds and stuff have gone up, I'm looking for like about six. It's just like a maybe cash seven cash metric. Yeah, on average, because I know if I I know I'm a really strong operator. I have a lot of metrics. I back it up. Uh, we were talking about my 36 unit. I I was property manager the last two months, just making sure a 36 unit was back on track. So I know operationally I'm better than many. Uh, I need to continue to scale and get that out and build even better systems to get there. But I will go into the weeds and do the property management if I have to myself. So I know when I'm underwriting deals, if I have like an average of 6%, I know, okay, we can sharpen the number for our CapEx budget. We can probably, because I assume taxes change day one. I'm getting quotes from insurance and assuming them they're going up 5% year over year. I know operationally, if I'm at my worst case scenario, low leverage, 3% rent growth, a max CapEx budget, and my tax is changing day one. If I can average five to six percent, I may have something, and that's where I kind of start looking at more at the capex. How are the roofs, the parking lots? You know, sharpening our you know management fee and asking what they'll actually charge because I always bump it up because you know with inflation and payroll and materials costing more, I'd rather underwrite for more and then shave down and it costs less. Because the last thing I want to go to a broker is like, oh, I underwrote ten grand a door in capex, but it's twenty because I didn't you know, look at the roofs or anything. So I always go super heavy on my expenses and CapEx. And if it's around that five to 6%, 
that's when I'll go kind of sharpen the pencil and make sure we can get a higher cash on cash for our investors. That's awesome, man. So with that, as you're finding some of these good deals out there, you have the name and the branding value add Mike. So how do you look at adding value? You've talked a little bit about adding them to people always is what I've learned from you. Um, but how do you add value to property, especially nowadays? Uh, dissect that for us here. Yeah. So I think I know everyone, I'm sure you're sick of everyone, like just implement rubs and pet fees. And But we've really looked, I think the biggest thing that we do a little bit differently is that instead of charging a security deposit, we're doing a $500 non-refundable move-in fee. And then we're using a security deposit alternative called Rhino. Um, and so what that does, so when a resident moves in, they pay you know, first month's rent, and then they're paying a security deposit. And we just did on our 36 unit, a security deposit would be one month's rent. So that's $1,300. And then there's always that at the end of the lease, that bone of contention or like, oh, this isn't good or this isn't. There's always that weird fight and tension at the end. So we just have that non-refundable 500 and Rhino costs about $180, I think we did the math, or maybe less. So the all in the resident pays us 680 or pays $680 to get keys and move in versus a security deposit it's costing 1300. So we're we get to recognize that $500 on a move in as revenue. We avoid confrontation with the resident on the back end. And we have coverage with Rhino because you can get two to three times the coverage of rent for damages, missed uh, payments, et cetera. So we get more coverage. The resident has to pay less. And you know, 500 times 36 units at a five cap, like that's a good spread. On top of rubs, a creative one if you're having animal feces uh, and people not picking up. Poo prints is another one that we've seen implemented when it's a more stabilized property and it's a... Uh, We'll call it the Karen problems, but animal, uh, every pet gets DNA tested. And then if maintenance or managers are on site and they um, uh, see any, they can get a sample, send it, and they can pinpoint whose dog it was, and you can charge a $300 fee. So that one's not a huge revenue generator, but it's more of kind of just making sure the community stays clean. So, so those are some real, you know, in, intimate value add opportunities there. So so let's let, let me add like value add such a like cliche word in multifamily investing. <laughs> so like what are some of the myths that you see people have when they think they're adding value when you're like yeah that's that's not a value add mike value add. Yeah, I think well, I look at value add as like other income is a big component. Like that should be 10 to 12% of your total income. I think like a lot of people spend a lot of like exterior in terms of like, I think the pergolas are great. I think the communities are great, but like just having a fenced in dog park doesn't do it. It's important. Yes. But like, I think people get lost in the sauce of like having that amenity. That's not like it's used once or twice. Like it's not a huge deal. We're trying to, we're really focusing in the next year or so. Uh, I think it's, it's, you know, we're still working on the process, but like an amenity fee, and what that will look like for the resident is like, hey, you get one apartment cleaning whenever you want, uh, all the air filters plus the service to replace that, and just kind of charging like a baked in fee and not even to break money on it. But like, how sick would it be if you're like in a class B or C apartment complex and you got your apartment cleaned, like no questions asked, like once during a 12 month stay? We're just working on trying to 
get creative, but not like nickel and dimer residents, but really focus on like the experience of like, oh, hey, work orders are getting done. Hey, I'm out for the weekend and I want my apartment clean. Like we have good rapport with uh, vendors. So it's like, let's take care of them. And then like, we all know renters don't care about their filters. Like I just looked at mine. I'm like, ooh, this has been a minute. So (laughs) it's like just handling those things that residents have to deal with that we know they should do. But we all know it's just like one more thing on their plate on top of living their life. So we're trying to make it easier for them as much as possible. Yeah, what, what I'm interpreting from that and, and seeing it a number of times too is people trying to overcook and overthink the value add and doing things that they re, they sound sexy, they sound really cool, but do they really add value? And tenants, you know, there's also a significant value to like the lifetime relationship or the tenure that a tenant stays at the property because obviously you have to turn it. Uh, when they turn over. And if you can get them to stay longer, you don't have to have that expense and things of that nature. So people want to stay where they feel appreciated and where they can have things that truly add value. The other thing that you hit on too, is we see a lot of people on the the lending side, because we see a lot of deals, a lot of performers, you know, try to try to call out deferred maintenance is something that adds value where it's like, you know, most deferred maintenance are like, they're required items to live in a specific place or asset. And so you're not really driving value when every place needs like heat and electricity and lights, you know, sorry, that didn't really do much to, to yeah, the Yeah, you don't get a $200 premium for having a roof. I think that's just expected. <laughs> most most places. I'm sure we can come up with some creative options where maybe not as much. So, uh, no, pre- appreciate you sharing those insights, man. And clearly we can we can see and hear a bunch of the nuggets that, that you've learned a- along the ways. But Again, like we began with, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. And so I'm sure over this fast escalated growth uh, trajectory that you've taken, there's been a couple of unique stories or learning lessons that you've had. So hit me with a good one because um, I, I know you probably got stories for days, man. Yeah, the the see, the see what had happened was segment. So yeah, my 30, <laughs> my, my 36 unit, we paid out 10% cash on cash year one killing it, killing performer rents, making money, high fives. Like we we thought we were, you know, the man and just like killing it. But then to start the year, we had eight vacant, you know, and that was just primarily due to lease exposure. And I was like, why are these units? Like we paid for apartments.com, got leasing, like what's going on? And I just like walked on site to the worst. Like if I had a 30 rack and a fo- foam roller and a gallon of paint, like just like that's the quality I walked into of like, Oh, I'm paying $500 a month for apartments.com to show the worst unit turns on earth. Uh, which then led to I knocked on a, what I thought was a vacant door. Or like it said, vacant on the rent roll. I knock and this woman goes, are you here to evict me? And I'm like, uh, and then this person introduced and I, and then, you know, I think a lot of people like, am I the owner? But like things were so bad that literally this woman introduced me to every single resident. It was like, he's the owner. He's here to fix it. Um, so literally to start the year, we had eight, 80% occupied with five people not paying rent. Uh, I've been micromanaging turns, uh, which anyone who knows me, I can't fix anything, but I've learned to ask really good questions. And since January 17th of 2023, and it's April 6th, I've been micromanaging and my property manager having calls every day, huddles, what's going on, doing, uh, I'm, he doesn't believe in working weekends. So I was doing scheduling showings through the texting app and our full. So I was doing property management, entering bills, paying bills, catching up to vendors. Like I did everything in property management 
uh, since January 17th. And now I just checked our rent roll. We're 96% pre-leased. Everyone, like before people paid rent by the end of the month, we're getting everyone paying by the 10th. Residents still call me, but I, I, t- I want to make sure people know I'm the owner because they associated me with that property manager. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. He works for me and I am on him like all the time. So any because just and we only caught him in that lie was because obviously the turns were bad, but <clears throat> we caught him in a lie that we were supposed to get possession on a Thursday. I called the police to verify and they're like, we don't have a writ of possession. So I called the courts and he goes, oh, this eviction didn't get filed till two weeks ago. He told me four months ago it was filed, which caused me to go on site, which caused me to keep going. And then you just kind of like for a whole month, I'm like, what's true? What's up? What's down? Like, but like, and I take it seriously. And I think anyone who's in this business needs to know these are people's homes. This is where people live. Uh, I was ashamed as an owner of this quality. He was over spending 25 grand on turns that were terrible. Uh, So just like you, these are people's homes and it matters. And you have to just, you know, obviously, you know, it's not a nonprofit, but, you know, you don't want to end up on the news for just being a terrible landlord and just being a slumlord. And that was the perception we had. But now residents like care and know that they can call me if anything happens and we'll get it done, whether it's Friday at 10 or water leak Saturday at 8 a.m. I'm here to represent them and make sure they have a safe home to live in. That's awesome, man. I know, look, I know you're a smart guy and I know you're, you're the type of guy you only need to learn a lesson once. So like, I mean, clearly there's a lot of lessons there, but what's, what's the main takeaway from there that, that, that Mike won't let happen again? Yeah, I think it's trust, but verify. I think the system I kind of was thinking is like, no turn will not like trust, but verify. And I think that's super cliche, but to kind of make it more palatable for the listeners is like, Hey, if we're paying 10 grand for a turn, I better see every turn and I'm not driving to my property. I mean, I will, but like unless a video is submitted of the turn and its quality and we approve it, then we can pay the bill. Like I'm not, I'm not paying for terrible shoddy work if it, and it's not done. Um, I think just seeing a lot of the paperwork. So it's like a trust, but verify is like, well, how do I know the the eviction got filed? And, just having a lot of proof. And I, you know, as an auditor, I'm like kicking myself that it didn't happen. And you hear the stories, um, but, you know, always have proof. So it's like if the vendor ter- finished the turn, let's do a video walkthrough to make sure it's approved to get paid. All right. It's approved. Let's get the invoice. Let's pay it and then keep going. And that's that's kind of the just mental system I developed. I'm going to work with uh, our property manager to have moving forward. But yeah, verify everything. Because if not, if you don't hold your property manager accountable, your investors are going to hold you accountable for not paying them. And the whole time I've been going through the saga, uh, I've been recording all of our property manager calls and giving them to investors because I got that from Ray Dalio. And I'll let you know if it's like, hey, if it's great, we're high-fiving. You can see the wins. If it's not growing great, well, you're going to see the losses and we're going to fix it and make it right. So it's... I'm just too transparent to just deal with the fluff and be like, it's fine. Trust me. And it's like, no, I'll just, here it is. Here's everything. Take it or leave it. But you'll know where you stand with me very quickly. (laughs) That's awesome, man. It allows you to go to sleep and put your head on the pillow without many things to worry about because you know you put it all out on your sleeve throughout the day, man. So that's awesome. So as as we close here, uh, I want to look for two things. One, how do we find you? Uh, And then two, which is one piece of advice you have for the listener here? Yeah. Uh, so everything, all my handles are value add Mike because no one can spell Taravella correctly. 
Uh, so YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Twitter's an underrated platform for those listening. So uh, that's where people who are doing a lot of stuff and not bragging about it are there. Uh, and then I think the biggest piece of advice that I that will differentiate you more than anyone, and it's and it sounds crazy, but if you work for someone for free for a year, you will get more experience. You'll be at a table that you couldn't even imagine. Like I did it for a month. Like I did it for like six months to a year of just educating myself and helping other people. But like if I work for a Nate or even myself for a year, willing to do everything, like literally everything and not expect payment, that's how you get in deals. That's how you learn from the best. That's how you get to be one of the best operators and investors or whatever you want to do. But work for free and lead with value, right? Don't just say, I'll work for free. Like do a YouTube thumbnail or recommend someone to Nate, like lead with value. And I think you can... Your your opportunities you couldn't even imagine to happen because I wouldn't be in Tennessee if I didn't do that and I would have never in my life thought I'd be in Tennessee, living in Nashville, owning this many properties and just talking to great people like Nate all the day every day. Well, my man, uh, you you truly live up to your name, uh, adding value, value add, Mike. So just appreciate all the knowledge and insights and, and uh, expertise that you dropped here, man. And uh, I'm excited to see you continue to grow yourself, your team, your portfolio, and uh, looking forward to seeing you on that road to success. So, Mike, thank you very much, man. Uh, that's a wrap. Check us every Tuesday for a new episode to drop on the real estate of things. Uh, this was Mike Taravella, value add, Mike dropping tons of multifamily insights and knowledge. And uh, you know where to catch us next time. You can always find things on our website, www.realestateofthings.co. That is a wrap. Mike, thank you, my friend. Thanks, Nate. Great talking to you as always. Are you a real estate investor looking for the right lender that can finance all your deals and help you scale? Lima One Capital has the best suite of loan products in the industry, bar none. Whether that's fix and flips, fix and holds, building new construction, or buying rental properties, they have incredible financing solutions for it all. A reliable, common sense lender is one of the most important parts of your investment team. And that's exactly what you get with Lima One. Let Lima One Capital show you how they've helped thousands of real estate investors scale and increase their wealth. Check out lima1.com or call 800-259-0595 to speak with a consultant in preparation for your next project. Thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate of Things podcast. Subscribe and tune in weekly for new content from the industry's best while we continue to unpack the nuances of this dynamic market. Follow us across social media for additional insights and analysis on the topics covered in each episode. And remember to rate, review, and share the show.